Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Good morning. My name is Travis. For those of you who don't know me, it's good to be together this morning. Uh, It's true what we just sang. Um, Praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, O Lord, O Lord our God. Those who trust Jesus have an eternity of joy and peace and blessing with our God. Isn't that amazing? I want to ask you a question. Have you ever read the Bible? Well, have you ever read the Bible? (laughs) And have you had a passage in the Bible just completely not make sense? You're reading it, the words are there in English or whatever language you read it in, uh, and and you were just like saying, man, it's all there, but I just can't get this. It does not sit well with my worldview or my conception of reality. It's saying things that I can't necessarily believe to be true, or even just the reality of some spiritual things. It just seems too out there. The Bible passages, as I've read the Bible over my lifetime, there are certain Bible passages that to me just seem too out there. Do you guys know what I mean? Like too out there? Uh, Just, uh, they seem to contradict my current understanding with my modern mind and how I conceive of reality. There's just things that don't seem to mesh well, with how I think. Well, that's the rabbit hole that we're gonna jump right into this morning. We're going to be looking at some themes and some scriptures that take us outside of how we would typically see the world and take us into the supernatural view that the Bible actually teaches of how we should see this world. Last week, Matt kicked off the series, Citizen, that we're in. And it's describing what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And he described the kingdom of God as the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So this is the kingdom that Jesus brought with his first coming. He began preaching and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus brought this the first time he came. But Matt also mentioned another kingdom. He said, when Adam and Eve made their decision to rebel against God, it kicked off a rival kingdom on earth, a kingdom in rebellion to God's kingdom. And I think if any of us are honest and we look around at the world around us, it's very obvious that there's another kingdom at play here, amen? There's a lot of stuff going on in this world that can only be attributed to a dark, evil, spiritual kingdom working behind the scenes. This rival kingdom on earth that Adam and Eve kicked off was instigated by another. Their sin and their rebellion was instigated by spiritual rebels, spiritual beings who rebelled against God. The war here on earth for the hearts and minds of humans is a reflection of the war happening in the spiritual realm. What's happening here is a reflection of something that's happening elsewhere. And so today, our goal is to begin to understand this rival kingdom to God's kingdom. To understand what's happening and what has happened in this spiritual war that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. Now, I wanna give you a disclaimer here. What I teach today may uh, challenge some of your current assumptions. It may trigger some of your modern sensibilities. Why is that word so hard to say? Sensibilities. It may trigger some of your modern sensibilities. You may read same things in the Bible and hear some things that I say and say, that's too out there. But what we have to decide as people who come to hear the word of God is, is this the word of God or isn't it? Am I gonna let this shape my worldview or am I gonna let culture shape my worldview? Be assured, though, I'm not teaching anything new this morning. Nothing I teach this morning is new. This is not like a new-fangled theology because we got bored and we ran out of stuff to talk about. Uh, This is actually a very ancient theology. The perspective I'm gonna be teaching you comes from a deep desire to understand what the authors of Scripture wrote and what they meant when they wrote it. 
Um, and it does come from a very ancient line of theology, um, people teaching God's word for what it actually said, things that Christians have believed for centuries until recently based on the actual text of scripture. You see at Crosspoint, our approach to scripture is to honor the author's intended meaning, is to honor what the authors of scripture actually meant when they wrote it. We often ask when we read scripture, what do I think it means? Wrong question. We should be asking, what did they actually mean when they wrote it? When God inspired them to write the pages of scripture, what did they actually mean? So our approach here at Crosspoint is to honor the original meaning of the text no matter how different or outrageous or supernatural it seems to our modern minds. We in the West are very uncomfortable with the supernatural. Even those of us who follow Jesus, who have a quasi-supernatural worldview, we get very allergic when it comes to people talking about supernatural things. We have this predictable flinch reaction to try to de-supernaturalize anything the Bible teaches that doesn't mess, mesh well with our modern sensibilities and our modern worldview. But I wanna remind you of something if you get a little allergic, allergic to some of the supernatural things we're gonna be talking about today. I wanna remind you what your faith, if you call yourself a Christian, is based on. If you are a Christian, by definition, you believe that God became a man, was born from a virgin, and that somehow this God-man's death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven up through the clouds is the bedrock of your faith. It doesn't get any more supernatural or outrageous than that. Can I get an amen? As citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we must rediscover and re-embrace a biblical worldview which by nature is a supernatural worldview. If you follow Jesus by nature of trusting him, who he is and everything the Bible says about him, you must have at least some sense of a supernatural worldview. But we need to re-embrace that, that the worldview that the Bible teaches is even much more supernatural in nature than we give it credit for. There is so much more going on behind the curtain than what we can see with our eyes. But if this was the worldview that followers of God have held for thousands of years, if, if, if for thousands of years people who follow Jesus have held a supernatural worldview much more than we do today, what happened? Why don't we also have that same worldview here in 21st century America for the most part? Well, I think the answer goes back to the age of the Enlightenment, age of Enlightenment back in the 1700s. So if, for those of you who hate history, you can just like totally like just take a nap for the next two minutes, okay? Please don't. Actually, you need to hear this. But uh, I said that to be funny. It really wasn't. But age of Enlightenment in the, in the 1700s, this was a time where there was all this scientific breakthrough. There was all these, you know, things invented and amazing stuff happening. A lot of development in the, in the art of reasoning and, uh, and philosophy and, and logic. <clears throat> and in that time, what happened uh, culturally here in America was that authority shifted from tradition and religion, that those were the places where you found truth, to reason and scientific method that those were the things where we started saying, here's how you find truth, not in religion, not in tradition, but rather in science and reason. Now, some left religion altogether because of this, but the vast majority of people didn't leave religion. They maintained their belief in God, but they adapted their interpretation of Scripture to match the modern sensibilities of science and reason. And so things in the Bible that didn't tend to mesh with what science seemed to be discovering then, people would adapt their interpretation of Scripture to match what science and reason of the day, which, by the way, has changed. People were matching their religion, their belief, their, their interpretation of Scripture to match what the culture was saying and science was saying. Now, I'm not saying that faith and science should be at odds at all. In a perfect world, if we had all the information that could be had, all the scientific data, if we could know it all, understand it all, see it all, I don't think, if we had complete knowledge 
I don't think it would compete at all with what the Bible says. I just don't. Because God has all knowledge and he's given us the knowledge he wants to give us in his scripture. And I think that science and scripture would come together rather nicely if we knew everything, if we could see everything, if we could know everything, but we can't. So I don't think there would be any tension there if we could, though. But this tendency to desupernaturalize scripture has had a range of effect in our culture. Everywhere from, on a low side of the scale, from opting for, for Christians, opting for less supernatural interpretations of what scripture means, all the way to the other side of the spectrum where theologians became what you call theologically liberal. That's not a political thing, that's a... a, a term in theology, theologically liberal, and even deist theology that even denied the deity of Christ. So people had all kinds of reactions all over the scale here, everywhere from, I'll just read the Bible less supernaturally, all the way to supernatural does not happen. And even if there's a God, he created it, he let it go, and everything that you're seeing right now is science. You do realize one of the founding fathers of our country, Thomas Jefferson, didn't like the Bible the way it was and created his own version of the Bible where he redacted, took out anything in there that seemed too supernatural or anything about Jesus that made him too much like God. So the effect of most in our country wasn't to deny their Christianity altogether, but rather to reinterpret scripture to be less supernatural and, and, and more palatable to the enlightened, quote unquote, Western culture. And I want to tell you that this, what I just described, the Enlightenment age, this is the religious tradition that most of us who have grown up in America have inherited. It's what comes natural to you. It's how you will typically, naturally think because of the culture you grew up in. A de-supernaturalized version of reality. A de-supernaturalized approach to interpreting and reading Scripture. But unfortunately, this tradition that we have inherited has a history of working around the more supernatural interpretations of Scripture rather than embracing them and saying, God has the wisdom. I must learn from him. We say he has to adapt what he says in his word to what I already think. We've reinterpreted Scripture to make its meaning more comfortable to us. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and said, I don't like what it seems to be saying. I'm going to interpret it differently. It's going to say something else by the time I'm done here. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Come on. We've all done that. This has profoundly affected our ability to have our beliefs shaped first by Scripture and then by culture. If most of us were honest, what we would have to admit is that the way I think and the beliefs I have are probably more influenced by the culture around me than by the pages of Scripture. Because we've grown up, even in church, with this different, enlightened, quote-unquote, approach of looking at the world. So our goal today is to begin to regain a biblical belief system about the spiritual realities that exist, the way God sees them, and the way God has inspired his authors of Scripture to describe them in Scripture. We want to begin to re-embrace that. So let's start with what Jesus said after his death and resurrection and right before he ascended back into the clouds up to the right hand of God in heaven in Matthew 28. Go, go there. It might be helpful for you to be looking at the pages of Scripture so you, you don't have to take what I'm saying. It's not, you don't need to listen to me. You need to listen to Scripture. So if you have a, a phone and you have a Bible app on that, great. If you have a paper Bible, whatever you have, grab that and it would be great for you to be looking at these Scriptures. If you don't, don't worry. I will read them. Just pay really close attention to the words. I promise I'm reading them exactly as they are written in God's word. Matthew 28, we're going to start at verse 16. Here it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that all authority, not only on earth, but in heaven, had been given to him? Sometimes we just go right past it. It just sounds like religious speak. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But he meant something by that. He meant something specific when he said all authority in heaven, in the heavens, in the spiritual realm has been given to me. Where did that authority come from? If that authority is being given to Jesus, and we assume God the Father is giving it to Jesus, who had it before it was given to Jesus? In other words, if God the Father has given Jesus authority in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, who had it before? Who was it taken from to give to Jesus? Because somebody had it. We know that the writers of Scripture believed in two spheres of existence. It's all over Scripture you see them talking about earth and the heavens. The earth, the land, the heavens. What's down here? What's up there somewhere past what we can see? So they had this belief in two spheres of existence. They believed in this physical existence here on earth, that there are beings who live here and exist physically here on earth, earthlings. Now, when I say the word earthlings, what do you think of? Human beings, right? But it's not just human beings. There's whales. There's dogs. There's earthworms. There's amoebas. All earthlings, all physical beings that live in this reality. But they also believed and wrote about the authors of Scripture that there were beings who lived in and existed in spiritually, spiritual existence in the heavens, in the spiritual realm. They believed in divine beings. They believed in spiritual beings. We as earthlings live down here, but spiritual beings lived up there. These divine beings are referred to in the Old Testament by the Hebrew word Elohim. You're gonna learn some Hebrew this morning, is that all right? You're just gonna learn one word, <laughs> Elohim. Now that word, if you use it in a singular sense, it refers to God, the most high God, the God that created everything, the God who's omniscient, omnipresent, omni, all those things, omnis, right? The one who created all things, the one that we're supposed to worship. If used in a singular sense, that word Elohim refers to the one most high God. But that same exact word, Elohim, is used in a plural sense to refer to other spiritual beings. And in the English, oftentimes this tr gets translated into gods, plural. Now, if you grew up in the church, that might mess with you a little bit, right? Because there's only one God. You're right, there's only one God like ours, but there are many spiritual beings, many Elohim that populate the spiritual realm. God is one of them, but he's different than all of them but he's still one of the spiritual beings, and so are all the others. So used in this plural sense, it gets translated in our Bibles to the word gods. Now, when you and I hear that word God, we tend to assign all kinds of meaning and attributes to that word. Like I said before, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, that he's the creator of all things, he's worthy of worship, all those things are true. But when the original writers and readers of the Old Testament um, read or wrote that word, Elohim, they didn't attach necessarily all those attributes to it unless it was a very clearly referring to the specific God who made all things, Yahweh God. That's his name. Did you know that God has a personal name? Yahweh. If they said the word Elohim back then, if they talked about Elohim, the person would probably ask that, you were, that was listening to it, they'd say, which one? If you want to talk about the God who created all the world and who the one who we worship and the most high God, oh, Yahweh, Elohim, because there are many spiritual beings. To them, Elohim was a class of being, a being who existed as a spirit in the heavenly realm, a divine being, a spiritual being, but there were, there were various kinds and very different kinds of spiritual beings. And so to them, the original readers, they would have no problem speaking of, quote, the gods. 
because their worldview was that the spiritual realm was full of various spiritual kinds of beings. The spiritual realm is populated with diverse kinds of spiritual beings. Just like on earth, there's a very diverse set of physical beings. Like I said before, from humans to dogs to earthworms to amoebas, all earthlings, all physical in form, and yet so very diverse in design, ability, power, and intelligence. So they believed the divine realm was full of a diverse set of spiritual beings with different designs, abilities, powers, and intelligences. This realm of the divine is what Jesus is referring to when he says, all authority in heaven has been given to him. So when we look at Matthew 28, 18, in essence, Jesus is saying, the authority that was once delegated to other divine beings, other Elohim, has now been reassigned to Jesus. All authority in the spiritual realm that had been given to other divine beings through the cross and resurrection and ascension, that was given to Jesus. But why would all this authority need to be taken away from other divine beings and given to Jesus? If God delegated it in the first place, why would it need to be given back to Jesus? It's because just like humans, many divine beings also sinned and rebelled and created a spiritual kingdom of rebellion against God, the one true God. This reality is plainly described in Psalm 82. Go there right now if you can. Psalm 82. If we read Psalm 82 plainly, it is very clearly described what was happening in the spiritual realm. If you have spiritual eyes to see it, if you can maybe push pause a little bit on your modern sensibilities and be able to trust the writers of Scripture that they knew what they were talking about. Psalm 82, starting at verse 1. God, there's the word Elohim, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. What's that? A divine council? Just keep reading. In the midst of the gods. Same word, Elohim. Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, plural, he holds judgment. This is your Bible. This is not me. Your Bible is talking about God being in the midst of the, quote, gods. So here we have a courtroom scene. God is surrounded by this retinue, this entourage of spiritual beings. And he's going to hold judgment on them for what they've done. This is a group of Elohim that have been delegated authority to rule over the nations, and I'll explain that to you later. But they've been delegated authority over nations and people groups. But see, these gods have gone evil. These spiritual beings, these Elohim have fallen. Look at now how Yahweh, God, indicts them for their wickedness. He brings charges in this courtroom scene. How long will you, Elohim, spiritual beings, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked. These who had received delegated authority from God are not serving the cause of righteousness. They're serving the cause of what? Evil, wickedness. How long will you show partiality to the wicked? God says, here's what you should be doing. You should have been give, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from now to the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. You see, these fallen Elohim, spiritual beings, used their power that they were delegated and given to lead humans into wickedness into exploiting the weak, exploiting the fatherless, afflicting the poor, doing everything that is against the heart of Yahweh God. And because these gods have gone wayward, the nations that they rule over are walking in darkness. The sin of the gods, these Elohim, have a profound destructive effect on earth. And so God now pronounces judgment on these lesser spiritual beings, these gods. Here's what's gonna happen to them, he says. This is God speaking. I said, God speaking, I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, remember that, sons of God. 
sons of God. You spiritual beings, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. God says, you who I delegated authority to, who I entrusted the nations to, you have led them into wickedness. And so even though you are spiritual beings, you will die like human beings. I will bring destruction to you because of what you've done. And then the psalmist begs God to do what Jesus would accomplish in Matthew 28, verse eight. The psalmist says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit what? All the nations. The psalmist is saying, God, I know that you delegated the rule of the nations of the earth to these fallen gods, these rebellious Elohim. I know you delegated authority to them, but I plead with you to bring judgment on them and take that authority back to yourself. You, Yahweh God, begin to rule all the nations directly again, like you did at first. So why will God strip away their authority, these fallen evil beings? Why will God strip their authority away and give it to Jesus? Because they rebelled against God and were using their power and authority to destroy humans and gain worship for themselves. In the place that God gave them to rule and to get, lead human beings, instead, they led human beings to wickedness and said, worship me, don't worship him. Don't worship the one true God. But, but then some of you in this room who are really smart are asking, but how in the world do we get to a place where rebellious spiritual beings are assigned authority over nations to rule them as their own? How do we get to that place where God is saying, I'm gonna have to revoke that? Well, we need to back up all the way to the beginning and then move forward again to tell that story. Go to Genesis 3, please. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. So just a little preface to Genesis 3.1. In Genesis, in the very beginning of the whole story of the Bible, we see that God makes human beings. But he doesn't just make them. He makes them in his image. He makes human beings like him in a way, representing him in a way. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, this means that human beings represent God on earth and are given dominion. He says, in God's image, he created them. And immediately what it says is he gave them dominion to rule over the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the earth. That's why God made us, the human race, to be the rulers over this earth delegated by him. He delegates authority to human beings. He delegates authority to spiritual beings. It's how he rolls. It's what he does. He makes creations and then invites them into what he does. We are God's image here on earth. At its very essence, God makes man and woman the kings and queens of the earth and delegates authority to them on the earth, this physical realm, to us to rule over. But it's interesting. He delegates all this authority to man and woman and says, rule the earth. But what does he put in the middle of the garden? He puts a tree and says, don't eat from that. In other words, he's saying, you may be kings and queens of the earth, but I'm still your king. You still have to obey me. That tree is a constant reminder that they weren't on their own, that there was an authority above them that they must bow to and surrender to to fully fulfill what human beings were supposed to do. We're not just agents out on our own. We have a king over us. And that's the line that they didn't, shouldn't ever have crossed. This all goes wrong in Genesis chapter three, starting at verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, stop. Okay, wait a second. Do snakes talk? Please answer the question, and it's not a trick question. Do snakes talk? No, they do not talk. Not now. 
and normal snakes, not then. The original reader would have said, whoa, 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 a talking snake? Snakes don't talk. What's going on here? But this serpent figure is speaking. An original reader with a supernatural worldview, would have what would they have assumed of this being? This serpent who's speaking to Eve. They would have assumed that it was an Elohim, a spiritual being that had taken on a physical form in order to be able to interact with a physical being. Taking on a physical form to speak to a physical being. And so the serpent says, this Elohim, this spiritual being says, did God actually say you shall not eat at, of, of any tree in the garden? That's, he, God never said that. He's lying from the beginning. He's, he's changing the narrative. God wants to starve you out, doesn't he? You can't eat from any tree. And Eve says, wait, 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 wait. And, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But then she adds something that God never said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So now she's starting to go along with the snake, changing the narrative of what God actually said. It's starting to work. But the serpent said to the woman, now he goes right into outright disagreement with God. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Even though just verses earlier, God said, you will surely die if you eat from this tree. The serpent's saying, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this serpent uses trickery and the twisting of God's words and then outright contradiction of God's word in order to entice the humans into crossing a line. A line has been drawn and it's good for them. You, humans, rule the earth, receive from my hand, follow me as king. And he's enticing them to say, I don't need to follow you as king. I can be more than you made me to be. What line did they cross? The line between what God and the other spiritual beings know and carry, knowledge of good and evil, and what human beings were designed to know and carry. Human beings were not designed to carry evil, knowing the difference between good and evil. We were designed to represent God, knowing only the good that he had created and, and spreading that good across the globe. That's what he said. My human beings, he says, they are very good. And then he says, so you being very good, fill the earth and subdue it. Because you are good, because you are made in my image, it's good if the world is full of human beings and you are the ones ruling. If you stay in that place, if you don't cross that line. And in a way, this serpent, this divine being, tempts the humans to reach out and take what they already have. He says, you'll be like God. But they already are. They're made in the image of God in the way that they're supposed to be. And he says, you can have more. You can have more. The serpent wants him to believe that there's more to be had. And it becomes very clear that his goal, this serpent, his goal is to lead the humans to their destruction. He is no friend of theirs. He wants to destroy them. This Elohim in rebellion sets himself up as the adversary of humanity. And he does so by enticing them to cross a line between their place and status as rulers of earth to be like God and become rulers of heaven. God had said, you have dominion over the earth. I have dominion over heaven. And the serpent comes along and says, you too, humans, can have dominion in the heavenly place. You, if you eat this fruit, will have knowledge that will make you more than just physical beings, more than just rulers of earth. You will be rulers in the heavenly realm as well. But the rebellion of both mankind and spiritual beings doesn't stop here. Look at Genesis 6. This is a really weird passage, you guys. I'm just, this is really weird. I'm just, I'm warning you right now. This is going to mess with your head. But this is God's word. Genesis 6, chapter 1. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, remember in Psalm 82, this term, sons of God, is used interchangeably with Elohim, divine beings. Sons of God, divine beings saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God, Elohim, divine beings, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Starting to sound like Greek mythology, isn't it? These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, who? The children born between spiritual beings and human women. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So here in Genesis 6, we see a very disturbing scene, a very hard to believe scene. And yet this is what the Bible teaches. Now we see divine beings cross a line. Adam and Eve had tried to cross a line saying, I can be more than the physical being having authority in the physical realm over I am. If I eat this fruit, I will be like the gods. I will be like the spiritual beings and be able to rule in that realm. And now we see the opposite happening. We see spiritual beings crossing a line and saying, I'm going to extend my authority and my presence outside of the heavenly realm into the physical realm. And so they somehow leave their place in the spirit realm and they take on physical form and have children with human women. And this creates this hybrid race of beings that seems to exponentially increase the wickedness on earth. Now it's at this point that most Americans get super allergic to what's being read and said right now and try to find other explanations that this might mean. Is anyone in here feeling the tension to say, please let this mean something other than what it seems to be saying? I'm preaching and I feel that. But this is the most clear and consistent and ancient interpretation of this message. That divine beings left their place, crossed the line, and to extend their authority and their presence into the physical realm came and had children somehow, some way, with human women. In Genesis 6, we see these spiritual beings cross the line. They leave their place to extend their presence and rule on the earth. And so because this vile thing has been done and too many lines have been crossed and too much evil is now proliferated in the world, God decides to start over by flooding the land. There's still one more crossing of the line that leads back to where we started in Matthew 28. Go to Genesis 11, starting at verse one. This is the story of the Tower of Babel, which I think also is very mysterious to us and eludes us as far as what it means and what actually happened there. <clears throat> verse one, Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. This land of Shinar, that's, that's the same place where Babylon, the ancient city Babylon was. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you remember what God told human beings to do at their creation? To be dispersed over the face of the earth. Fill the world and subdue it. Spread out 
bring Eden to the whole world. And here these people are saying, no, let's stay together. Let's stay here in this one place. Verse five, and, and Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower with the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, who's us? God and his spiritual beings. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and he forced them to do what he had commanded them to do in the first place. By confusing their speech, he dispersed them over all the face of the earth and they left off building the city, verse nine. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So yet once again, we see man attempting to cross a line, don't we? We see them building a tower that attempts to cross into the heavens. They think if we can build a tower high enough, maybe we can leave our place here, cross a line and become more than what we are and rule and have presence in a spiritual realm where we currently cannot. The whole point of this is to become more than they are and to make a name for themselves. Also, like I said before, notice that they did, they did this in direct defiance of the commission that God had given all humanity. The people of Babel say, no, we're not gonna fill the world and subdue it. We're gonna make a huge city and we're, city and we're gonna stay right here and not disperse and fill the world. So God, presumably speaking to his divine counsel, his entourage of spiritual beings, he says, let's go down there and put a stop to this. He confuses their language and he disperses them across the earth. Now, lucky for us, Deuteronomy 32, Moses reflects back on this Tower of Babel moment and gives us a little sneak peek into what was happening in the spiritual realm here. Deuteronomy 32, starting at verse seven. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to what? The numbers of the sons of God. According to the number of of divine spiritual beings. But the Lord's portion, Yahweh's portion, is his people, Jacob. That's just a way of referring to Israel. The Lord's por portion is Israel, his allotted heritage. So as Moses reflects back on this Tower of Babel moment, he elaborates on what was happening in the spiritual realm when God dispersed the nations. This passage teaches us that God disinherited the peoples of the earth from his direct rule. I will no longer rule over you directly. You are on your own, but I'm going to de delegate you to someone else. Instead of God directly ruling over them, God divides mankind up into nations and delegates authority over those different nations to these fallen sons of God, these fallen Elohim, these fallen spiritual beings and says, this fallen spiritual being, you rule those people. This fallen spiritual being, you rule those people and so on and so forth. He gives them the consequence of what they asked for. Human beings kept crossing lines saying, we wanna be like these spiritual beings. And the spiritual beings said, we wanna be with and like and proliferate our power on earth. And so God says, you humans rebel against me, you Elohim fallen spiritual beings rebel against me, you can have each other. That's the consequence. But you're not gonna like it, humans. These fallen spiritual beings are wicked. They will rule over you mercilessly. They will lead you into all kinds of wickedness, but it's what you've chosen. You don't want me, I'll give you what you want. And so as a consequence of their rebellion, God gave the people of the world over to be ruled by the ones whose status they were trying to attain. These rebellious spiritual beings. 
You ever wonder why there's specific gods when we read in the Bible? You ever wonder why there's these specific people groups and they have their own God? This group has a God named Molech, and these, this group has a God named Baal, and this group of people has a God named Asherah. It's because God had disinherited the peoples, the nations of the world, the Gentiles of the world, to be ruled, each nation, by a different fallen spiritual being. They were ruled and being ruled by divine wicked beings who demanded worship like the Most High God. And these small G gods, small G gods, had real authority and real dominion over them. But then, out of all the people of the earth, though God disinherits them all, God starts a new nation, and he keeps for himself one nation to rule over directly, to be their God, to directly rule over them, not delegated to a rebellious divine being. Who was that people that God took as his portion? He divided it up like a pie and said, this God will rule that one, and this fallen spiritual being will rule that one, but for me, I keep for my portion who? Israel. And not only did God choose Israel to directly rule over, we see in Genesis 12, where God starts speaking to Abram, we see that Israel was to be God's gateway to reclaiming the nations, God's handle on the world to give his love and blessing to the nations so that they would return back to him. So by directly ruling over Israel himself, God's plan was to bless the nations through them and eventually take all the nations back to be his direct rule. And we see the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. I wanna read you something you may have never read like this before with this perspective, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I'll let you give a second to get there. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Here's Paul speaking, and he says this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Get this, who is he talking about here? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Do not think here that he's talking about human rulers and authorities. He's talking about spiritual rulers and authorities, fallen Elohim. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, fallen spiritual beings, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross and arose from the grave, it revoked the authority of the rebellious spiritual rulers and authorities that he had delegated authority to. God said, that time is over. You've been ruling over the nations. You've been leading them into wickedness. And when Jesus died and rose and was about to ascend and did ascend to the right hand of God, God says, I have a new king over all the earth and all the heavens. I revoke your authority and I give it to Jesus. His sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice was so great that it put those spiritual beings into open shame. His sacrifice was so great and its ramifications so unexpected that it left the evil powers of this world standing with their jaws on the floor. He did what? We lost what? Paul further comments on this in 1 Corinthians 2. Maybe just close your eyes and listen to this. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 1. And I... Paul speaking, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's something about Jesus and him crucified that is so groundbreaking. Skip to verse seven. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers, again, this is not talking about human rulers, this is spiritual rulers, divine beings. None of the divine beings, fallen, rebellious beings of this age understood this. What? The cross. They, never, they didn't understand the cross. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord 
of glory. If the, the rulers in the spiritual realm knew what the cross was going to do, they would not have been trying to kill Jesus on the cross. If they knew what that was going to accomplish, they wouldn't have done it, but they didn't know. God pulled a switcheroo on them. When Jesus took up his cross, these spiritual beings had no idea that he was taking up the most powerful weapon in the universe, complete, humble, sacrificial surrender to the most high God. When the evil gods of this world, those rebellious fallen divine beings, hatched their plan to murder the true son of God. See, they thought they were taking care of a problem. They thought if we kill Jesus, then he can't take over the world and revoke our authority. What they didn't realize is when they built the cross for him, they were signing their own death warrant. They had no idea that they were killing themselves. The evil powers constructed a cross to defeat Jesus, having no clue that it would be the stake driven through their own hearts. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus wins by dying. So let's bring it back to where we started, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because that is true, because I have all authority, now go and make disciples of what? All nations. The ones who had been previously ruled by fallen, demonic, wicked beings. They've lost their authority. And so now I give you permission to go out into those nations and bring the gospel. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended, and was enthroned in heaven, all power was taken away from these fallen gods who had ruled over and essentially owned the Gentile nations. All their authority was stripped from them and given to who? Church, say it. Given to who? And that power, that jurisdiction over the nations was given to our king, Jesus. And so now Jesus tells his disciples who have been confined to just giving the gospel in Israel. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were doing their thing here on earth? Where were they? Israel. They didn't leave Israel. Why? Because the authority of the nations, the, the fallen rebel spirits hadn't been revoked yet. They're in Israel. They're confirming what God was gonna do through Abraham, that Israel would be the starting place of the blessing to the nations. But because Jesus died on the cross, when they were just confined to taking the gospel message only within the borders of Israel, now that Jesus has been enthroned, now that he has received all the power from all the spiritual beings, the jurisdiction to take the gospel into all the nations is his. And he can tell his followers, you have the right to leave Israel and take my message to the nations. And it will work because the authority of these fallen spiritual beings has been taken away. I bet you never saw that in the Great Commission, did you? The work of Jesus canceled the power of the rebellious kingdom. And so now the gospel moves forward. Can I get an amen? So what is the response of kingdom citizens to this truth? This isn't just something to go home and go, oh, that's great, I learned something new. We have a response. We have an obligation to our king to respond to this. Don't we? We desire, because we are kingdom citizens, we desire that the king's power in the king's people would be expanding the king's place. Our call is to go out in the world and make disciples. Why is the American church so weak and fruitless? It's because we've been lulled into a sense of spiritual apathy so that when God presents to us a spiritual problem like a pandemic, we fight each other. Do you know how much fighting there's been in the church in the last year? It is blasphemous. When Jesus said, 
I am your king and I want you to be one as I and the Father are one. And yet there's a, a, a catastrophic event that happens in the world and who do you find fighting each other? Christians. It's blasphemy because we're saying you're not my king. I'll do what I want. People are not the enemy. We have an enemy. His name's Satan, and he needs to go down. But the church in America is too busy fighting itself. Repent. We have to see things differently. We have to see people differently, no matter how evil or no matter how enemy-like people seem to be. They are not the ultimate enemy, are they, church? Who's the ultimate enemy? The evil one. And Jesus has said, church, you bind together, you lock arms, and you move forward with the gospel. And yet we pick up the weapons of division and anger and calling people idiots who don't agree with us, and I have an opinion, and I'm gonna share it with everyone I want to. Those are the weapons we pick up. But Jesus says, I'm your king, and I have weapons for you to pick up. It's called sacrifice. It's called love. It's called forgiveness. It's called long-suffering. It's called the gospel. And what weapons have we picked up? What weapons have you picked up? What weapons have I picked up? Church, God has given us everything we need to advance against the enemy and finish this sucker off. But we're so busy fighting each other, so busy fighting politics. Oh, how disturbed God's heart must be watching the American church. It is time to wake up and repent and move forward with the gospel into all nations. Let's stop messing around. People are not the enemy. No politician is the enemy. No political group is the enemy. They may be wrong. They may have very disturbing things they're teaching but they are slaves in need of liberation by the gospel of Jesus. Repent. The gospel can be opposed by the evil one, but it cannot be overruled. The enemy of our souls is fighting a losing battle of attrition. Some people would ask, well, then why does it seem the world's getting worse if there were their authority has been taken away. I would say it's the same reason as what we saw in 1944. When the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, that was what broke the back of the Germans, broke the back of the German army. But do you know that more people died between the storming of the Battle of Normandy and a year later than the whole war before it? Because the enemy was losing, he was desperate and he fought like mad to keep alive. And that's what we see happening in our world. The devil has lost. He is losing. But he and his forces are still working. And they know their time is short. And so they're desperate. And so we see unbridled attacks on innocent people and the people of God. Because his time is short. And so this means we have to look at people differently. We have to pick up different weapons than the world offers us. Some of you may realize this morning that you have not yet given your heart, your life, your allegiance to King Jesus and that that is who you need. If that is you, I'd encourage you as we conclude to come forward. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward and they would love to introduce you to Jesus. He loves you, he wants you, and he died for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we have you as a king. Jesus is our king. And we are grateful that you rule over us with love and grace and mercy. Please help us to see our world differently. Please help us to see our world differently. Help us to believe what you've written in your word as it says. And help us to see 
what you see and see people how you see people. We love you. We repent of our sin. We repent of our wrong thinking and we move forward in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.